right? In some sense, they're material, and yet the meaning of those marks is not physical. In the same way, uh, there are other analogies too, computer hard drives, the smartphone that represents the information of songs or email messages or contacts, right? In the same way, the physical material nervous system represents information. Most of that information is forever unconscious, outside of awareness. For example, the nervous system is tracking the uh, carbon dioxide saturation in the blood. And when that CO2 concentration rises past a certain threshold, uh, the nervous system recognizes that as a signal and initiates a cascade of instructions to take a deeper breath. That's information processing. At the highest level of the architecture of information processing, we hear sounds, see sights, think thoughts, and so forth. Okay, But all that, including the realm of phenomenology, the realm of experience altogether, is taken as immaterial information. It's existent. It's also natural. And I hope to avoid getting into this because it can get a little technical and a little heady. Inside the natural frame, I'm going to do it anyway. Inside the natural frame, (laughs) it'll be fast and painless, hopefully. Um, Inside the natural frame, for information to flow, it requires the underlying condition of the nervous system. So the information flows, including our experience, is highly conditioned, constrained, and constructed by underlying physical processes that themselves have been highly uh, constrained and conditioned and constructed by three and a half billion years of evolution on the planet, let alone the underlying nature of physical reality altogether. And that, by the way, is a kind of insight it can support equanimity because when you realize that the actual experience of uh, what arises in you when someone gives you attitude across the dinner table, <laughs> that experience, which we could take so seriously and think is so solid, is so arbitrarily produced by a vast <laughs> 10,000 billions of causes that are highly contingent over the last three and a half billion years. When you realize there's some <laughs> weird linkage between the evolution of germs for three billion years before multi-celled creatures arose, you know, and how you feel when you're stuck in traffic or you watch someone on TV whose politics you don't like or all the rest of that, or you see something at the store and you want it and you want it and you want it. Those so precious experiences, meh, you know what I mean? They're just arbitrary and constructed by these vast causes. And knowing that can support a little bit of disenchantment with regard to them, which the Buddha has certainly supported. Okay, so on the one hand, right, these flows of information are really supported by these underlying processes, but also in the parts of the brain that can represent any information. These are what are called association cortices. They're like RAM in a computer or a chalkboard, if that were a chalkboard or whiteboard. Any kind of words, any kind of picture can be drawn on a chalkboard or whiteboard. In the same way, pretty much almost any kind of thought or information or view or desire uh, or perspective can be represented in these association cortices of the brain. They're like an empty, they're sort of like a blank canvas. Then if you think about it, at a certain point, 
the flows of information themselves take on a causal quality. They start the logic of a conversation with a friend, the natural flow of a song. These are information, right? The logic of a geometry proof, to use a very pure case. That flow of information and the underlying momentum of it, the logic of it, the dance of it, the the lawful blossoming of it, has a causal power that enlists underlying neural processes, underlying physical processes, to its own purposes. So that at some level, as Dan Siegel puts it, the mind uses the brain to make the mind. That's why I think that this natural frame is not reductionistic in that kind of pejorative sense, that critical sense that people often talk about it with. Because even though inside the natural frame, flows of information require underlying material representation, causally, those flows of information have a life of their own. Let's leave it right there. And I think that's pretty cool. Okay, I'll leave it right there. Any more questions or comments? Okay, how about the mic master? You just choose, okay? Just the power you have. Okay, great. Howdy. Um, mine's a quick one. Um, you use the phrase, med- the word meditation a lot. Um, and I know people who come into it through a very uh, emotional, devotional door. Yeah. I know people who come into it through staring at your, staring, not staring, thinking about your breath, focusing on your breath. They seem very different to me. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you could bring it all together for me. Thanks. <laughs> oh, that's another quick one. Well, all right, so. No, it's great. It's great. So, let's see here. First off, I remember I went to this talk, uh, several people spoke, and uh, Father Thomas Keating, who's um, one of the main popularizers of centering prayer, all right, which is a devotional practice in its own way. I remember him saying, um, he says, a life without a contemplative perspective is a sure prescription for disaster. All right, so what do we mean by that word, contemplative? So. People use the word meditation in lots and lots of different ways. It's okay with me. I don't think there's some right way to use the word. I do think it helps to cross over dialects and to know what we mean by the word when we use it. Right? Uh, there are many kinds of meditation inside a Buddhist frame. Classically, in research on meditation, I think there are basically four categories. One category is called um, focused attention, where you pick some object of attention and you really go deeply into it. And that's where the concentration practices in Buddhism come in, um, which can become very profound and take us into non-ordinary states of awareness. Uh, A second category of meditation is called open awareness, where you establish just enough steadiness of mind to stay present and not... Uh, swept away by the stream of consciousness, while otherwise opening increasingly out into a kind of choiceless awareness, where 
just stuff comes, stuff goes. You're just sitting. You're just present, emptying out. Okay. A third kind of meditation can draw upon either of those two to develop some quality like compassion or loving kindness or insight into impermanence or um, a sense of union with the divine. Okay, although I'm staying inside the Buddhist frame for a minute here. And then the fourth kind of meditation is not so well studied, but I think it's a lot of what people do when they meditate, me included, just chilling out. <laughs> not stressing, mind kind of wandering a little bit, kind of off the wheel, not grinding, not scratching, clawing. Thank goodness, what a relief. And I think there's a place for that kind of meditation too. All right? And it doesn't mean you're a bad meditator because you sit on the couch and just space out for 10 minutes, you know, and then maybe get a little more formal in your practice. Okay, so another distinction, of course, is, is a person doing their meditation uh, in the context of a relationship with something they consider ultimate or transcendental or spiritual. And that's where I think the word prayer starts to come in for people or various kinds of devotional practice. So a person can do a devotional practice to a guru, a teacher, let's say, and a person can, which I would consider inside the natural frame, because that teacher is a natural individual, but one can also meditate through that guru or otherwise meditate in relationship with something divine. For me, it's all in the frame of contemplative practice. So these are just different distinctions and kinds. And then to sort of sum it up and bring it down to earth, obviously in the Buddhist frame, the three pillars of practice, you may know this, are in the words Pali, sila, samadhi, and panya. Sila is virtue, uh, calming the body, being moral, being benevolent toward oneself and others, non-harming. Samadhi means concentration, achieved typically through meditative training. There's a place for contemplative training, for deepening our own stillness and access to stillness, uh, even in everyday life, as well as deepening our steadiness of mind and getting control over that combination spotlight and vacuum cleaner that is attention. Because getting control over that vacuum cleaner, as it were, is a fundamental requirement for self-directed neuroplasticity. Because otherwise, that spotlight vacuum cleaner of attention is skittering all over the place, being highly controlled by other people, right? Who want you to pay attention to their thing, their product, their war, uh, their view, right? So deepening in the samadhi dimension of practice, the concentration, mindfulness, regulation of attention, is fundamental to personal autonomy, if you think about it, and uh, gets at the essence of self-reliance. And then the last uh, pillar of practice is wisdom, panya, wisdom, where we develop, deepen in our wisdom, we start understanding more and more what helps and what hurts. Uh, the Buddha said wisdom at bottom is choosing a greater happiness over a lesser one. It doesn't take much wisdom to choose you know, pleasure over pain, but to make distinctions about higher and more sublime and more fundamental and more benevolent forms of happiness over lesser ones. That takes more and more wisdom. So then the question becomes, how do we both deepen inner steadiness of mind kind of generically and train ourselves in that way? 
and be ardent, resolute, diligent, and mindful. Those four words again. To train in steadiness of mind. My own personal practice started really taking off probably about 20 years ago when a teacher of mine looked at a small group I was in and said, well, what about concentration? Which was this very underrepresented pillar of practice. You know, to learn how to discipline attention, especially in a culture that's so ADD, constantly trying to get us to skitter our attention around. You know, look at a movie from the 80s, even like a thriller, a Sam Peckinpah thriller or something, and there are these long scenes. These days, you can't watch movie or TV without, or a commercial without there being a cut within every few seconds, if not literally two or three a second. It's crazy. So we deepen in our control of attention. That's fundamental for equanimity. Calm abiding. Shanti Davis said a, you know, a few slides back, calm abiding is really fundamental to equanimity. And then we apply that meditative control, that steadiness of mind, to, um, to deepening insight. We start seeing things more and more clearly. So then, for me, just to wrap up and sum up, um, I think there's a place in the types of meditation to really engage focused attention practices in the beginning. I think a lot of people jump too quickly to open awareness, and often... Uh, mindfulness is taught, in my view, moving too fast to open awareness, choiceless awareness, just being with what's there, which is very hard to do if you don't already have a lot of steadiness of mind. So get that steadiness of mind in place, then move more into open awareness, which contains profound teachings about the nature of experience, qua experience, experience as experience, right? You start seeing its streaming nature, its compounded nature, its kind of fizziness in the mind, and its unsubstantiality and its incapacity fundamentally to bring lasting happiness. So you start shifting in your relationship to experience instead of chasing after it. And then also, if it's meaningful to you and it's meaningful to me, disclosure, I'm a transcendentalist. I think there really is an X factor. I think the Buddha was a transcendentalist as well, although he was very careful not to, he was very careful to constantly undermine people's attempts to reify, thingify, the transcendental, the unconditioned, into something they could then grasp onto and chase after and identify with. He was very good at yanking the carpet out from underneath people all day long about that. But that said, in my view, it's quite clear he really did speak about the deathless, the unconditioned, um, that which is beyond. Um, and for me as well, you know, a lot of what my practice is honestly about is gradually dust and the crud off the stained glass windows so that of the mind and the body so that the light that was always already there can shine through more clearly, carrying me along with it. And for some people, that is a fundamental purpose of practice as well. Steadiness of mind, moving into open awareness, which takes you increasingly out into experience and nature. And then if it's meaningful to you, either along the way or at that ultimate point, edging out into whatever is your authentic sense of what might be transcendental, if that's meaningful to you. That's a good path, huh? Okay. Okay. How about some self-compassion? And then how about a break, okay? So, as the Buddha teaches here, we can't help others if we don't help ourselves. As they put it, you know, the cliche, in an airplane, put your own oxygen mask on first. Right? As Pema Chodron writes, yep, the root of Buddhism is compassion, and the root of compassion is self compassion. 
It's okay to take good care of yourself. To do that, though, is not always so easy. Even though these days there's a lot of research about the benefits of self-compassion, including in helping people become stronger inside, more able to deal with the tough things in life, it's actually hard for many people to give themselves the same decency, the same respect, the same acceptance, the same forgiveness, the same putting things in perspective that they easily give to other people. That's where training in self-compassion can be very, very helpful. And so, partly based on you know, some research um, about how we handle relationships and, and also how, how we um, uh, need to be sort of resourced so that we can be kind to ourselves, I have this little three-step way of supporting self-compassion. There are other ways into self-compassion. Christopher Germer and, and Kristen Neff are training people in self-compassion. People have written books about it. You might have some familiarity with this territory already yourself. Uh, this is my way into self-compassion, and we'll do this momentarily as a practice. Okay, And then we'll just segue into a break from this practice uh, and then come back from the break. Okay, So like any practice, which we're about to do, Number one, you feel free to ignore everything I'm saying. If you just kind of want to space out, it's totally okay. Uh, if also something gets stirred up for you that's uncomfortable, you know, and past your threshold, outside your comfort zone, it's really okay to disengage it from it, drop it, move around, look around, do whatever you need to do to take good care of yourself. Um, and like any practice, uh, you try to get something to happen, whether it's just being present in a choiceless awareness mode or trying to call up or activate some compassion for others or for yourself, you try to get something going. Often you're successful, sometimes you're not. Either one is an opportunity for learning. So it's in that frame then that we'll dive in. Okay, so let's begin. In the first step, see if you can start to help yourself begin to feel cared about. So, getting present with yourself, with your eyes open or closed. And then bringing to mind one or more beings that you know care about you. Could be a pet. Could be a friend. Could be a family member. Could be someone in your life or in your past. Could be a group of people. Could be a spiritual force or being. And what you're doing is trying to help yourself begin to have the emotion that we have when we feel cared about. Feeling cared about comes in many forms. All are fine. Any one of them is fine. For example, Being included, a sense of belonging, is a way to feel cared about. Maybe a group of friends, or a work team, or a sports team, or you work with others in some cause. Also, being seen, being understood, or at least someone is trying to understand, trying to empathize with you. That's also a way to feel cared about. Another way to feel cared about is to feel appreciated or respected, that someone is perhaps grateful to you. You've given them something. It's nice that there's so many ways 
to open to this really important experience of feeling cared about, which also includes feeling liked. What's it like to feel liked? And of course, to feel cherished and loved. So I'll be quiet here now for some moments, thankfully, so you can actually open to this experience and feel it more and more in your body and help protect it, feeling cared about one way or another. You might embody and strengthen this experience with a hand on your heart, if you like, or a hand on your cheek, as if the most caring being in the universe were sending you love. And you are receiving it. Then in the second step, with whatever fullness of heart has been cultivated here, shifting to feeling caring yourself, especially in terms of compassion, bringing to mind someone that you care about who's suffering. Could be subtle, could be stress, worry, pressure, frustration, it might be very intense, very anguished. It could be someone you know well, it could be a person or a group of people you don't know so well here at home or perhaps abroad. See if you can start to cultivate compassion, the wish that a being not suffer, usually combined with a warm-heartedness, tender concern. opening to the experience of compassion, perhaps tuning more into the heart area in your body, giving over to compassion. If your mind wanders, it's fine, you bring it back. Radiating compassion, waves rippling out from you, perhaps strengthened with soft thoughts in the back of the mind, like, may you not suffer. Or perhaps something more specific, like, may you find work. May your chemotherapy go well. So I'll be quiet again for some moments as you explore compassion 
helping the experience to be as powerful and embodied as possible. Wishing that beings didn't suffer. And then in the third step, knowing what compassion feels like, getting a sense of it in the body, being aware of it as an attitude or a stance. In this third step now, apply this experience and attitude of compassion toward yourself, the one being among others who wears your name tag. Perhaps seeing yourself in front of you, imagining yourself, or just simply knowing yourself um, inside. Being aware of your own suffering, your own stress, pressure, worries, subtle discontent, or perhaps serious health problems, physical pain, losses, (coughs) residues of early life experience. And while touching the suffering lightly, not being consumed by it, regenerating again and again compassion, the wish that you not suffer, a warmth for yourself, perhaps strengthened with soft thoughts like, may I not suffer? Or you might use your name as I would. Rick, may you not suffer. May you not suffer, Rick. You can also be more specific. May I find love. May I not feel so pressed around work. May my own chemotherapy go well. I'll be quiet again for some moments as you explore what's it like to radiate warmth toward yourself, caring, recognition of how life is hard for you, 
and a wishing that you not suffer. You might have a sense somehow of compassion flowing through you. It might even feel in some way like it's not even your own compassion. It's just moving through you, a warmth, an energy, perhaps a light, radiating outward, filling you. If you like, you can also bring to mind particular challenges you're facing in life today or times in your past, in adulthood or reaching back into the teen years or even younger, when things were hard for those younger versions of you. You might imagine them, these younger versions of you, perhaps sitting outside you or younger layers inside your own psyche, and send compassion to those younger versions of yourself, even all the way back to that little boy or little girl you once were. And then just before we finish up, as a kind of bonus, if it's real for you, you might shift the perspective and explore if there can be a sense inside of receiving compassion. In other words, you've been sending compassion to yourself and deep down in the brain, it doesn't know what the source of an experience is. So deep down inside you, you might explore what it could feel like to receive the compassion, including maybe getting a sense of younger layers in your psyche, receiving the compassion that's been radiating toward you. 
A teacher of mine once encouraged me to meditate through the end of a formal practice like a runner running through the tape at the finish line of a race. So as we go into this break, feel very free to protect your own space, to, as the Buddha put it, guard the sense doors. You don't need to talk with people if you don't want to, um, or you can. Uh, just you know, It's okay to keep letting this reverberate in you. Neurons that fire together, wire together. You can continue to help this wiring process. That's the physical basis of growth and change and learning to continue, even during the break. So we'll take a 20-minute break, if you could. Uh, Come on back, please, at a quarter after 11. See you then.